The United States has been sanctioning the Syrian government since the 1970s. Most of the current sanctions, though, came in two waves. The first was in 2004 to try to force an end to the longstanding Syrian troop presence in Lebanon. The second was a response to the Syrian government's sharply escalating human rights abuses following the 2011 Arab Spring protests. Those protests evolved into a still raging internal conflict and the sanctions have curtailed most remaining U.S. trade with Syria. They froze the U.S. assets of government officials, government-owned enterprises, and prominent Syrian businessmen tied to the regime. In 2019, the United States changed its sanctions approach with the Caesar Act. Elliot Engel, the former House Foreign Affairs Committee chair, sums it up. The Caesar Act imposes the most sweeping sanctions on the Syrian regime and its backers since the start of the Civil War. <laughs> Unless they stop the violence against their own people and take irreversible steps towards peace, the United States must raise the price of their choices. What does the Caesar Act do? It's designed to really hamper the government of Syria. So sanctions on anyone who helps or works with the government of Syria or its networks or senior policy figures, those who support the oil and gas industry there, those who provide military aircraft or parts or construction or engineering services. But it also does something else. It mandates sanctions on anyone effectively doing business with any other person or entity designated under Syria-related authorities. So, if you've been designated but I haven't, and I do business with you, I need to be designated too. That's Howard Schatz. He's a senior economist at RAND who served on the Bush administration's Council of Economic Advisors in 2007. He says that the Caesar Act had a specific goal. Why do we have this? We, the United States, want to drive the Assad government into the kinds of reforms mandated by UN Security Council Resolution 2254. Well, the threat of secondary sanctions has effectively stopped outside investors from cooperating on reconstruction projects. That's been extremely successful. We know that in part because potential investors have complained about it. But even with all that pressure, the Assad regime hasn't done what the United States was trying to get it to do. Has it forced in any way Assad to agree to move even a single step closer to doing the things that UN Security Council Resolution 2254 says he should do? I think the answer there is no. Ali Vaez, the International Crisis Group's Iran Project Director, says that sanctions on Iran have done no better. Despite the sanctions policy, Iran of today, of 2022, is closer to the verge of nuclear weapons than it has ever been. It has one of the most sophisticated ballistic missile arsenals anywhere in the region. And it has a network of influence through partners and proxies throughout the region that threaten U.S. interests and those of its allies. So if we measure the success of U.S. economic coercion against Iran by those developments in the past four decades, it has been an abject failure. Welcome to the U.S. in the Middle East podcast miniseries. In this series, we talk to leading experts and former policymakers about the role of U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. 
I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Spignev Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we look at the United States Economic Toolkit in the Middle East and how successful sanctions and development aid have been to address U.S. interests in the region. Sanctions have become the U.S. government's go-to economic tool in the Middle East and beyond since 9-11. Last year, the Biden administration commissioned a comprehensive report on the use of sanctions around the world. Ali Vaez summarizes the findings. You can see that use of U.S. sanctions in the past 20 years has increased by 930%. We have a powerful machinery in designing, implementing, and enforcing sanctions. But this is a wheel that only turns in one direction. And the United States has gotten very good at turning it. Those sanctions could be trade sanctions, so limits to some extent on trade of goods and services between countries. They could be investment sanctions, limits on investments into U.S. firms or U.S. investments into foreign firms, or they could be financial, in which we limit in some way foreigners from accessing the U.S. financial system. Those sanctions can be costly. Between 2011 and 2015, U.S. sanctions caused Iran's gross domestic product to contract more than 20%. Over the same period, U.S. sanctions on Iran's oil sales shrank exports by over a million barrels a day, more than 50%. But does that pressure lead to what the United States wants? Ali Vaez said that it can, but only under specific circumstances. What people often overlook is that the Obama administration had two characteristics that actually helped it to cash the check that it had through sanctions. And that was number one, the fact that it was in pursuit of a narrow, realistic objective in a coordination with the world powers, both the Europeans and Russia and China. And second, that it, as the stronger party, made the first concession to the Iranians. And in 2012, in secret negotiations in Oman, it was the U.S. that took a step back from the previous red line of zero enrichment in Iran and accepted that there has to be a limited but rigorously monitored nuclear program in Iran. And that is what made a deal possible. But Howard Schatz says that using sanctions to get countries to do what the United States wants is more complex than it seems. Now, if you look at the actual consequences, sanctions are very good at causing declines in GDP and declines in trade. So they have economic consequences. Do they have the compliance consequence that you want? That's much harder. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. They can cause a lot of pain. It is highly unlikely that they will cause countries to give up core interests. And sometimes sanctions policy can have the opposite effect from what policymakers intended. Sanctions create a new class of Iranian officials who really benefit from skirting sanctions and creating ways to circumvent them through smuggling and black market. The previous Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, used to call them the merchants of sanctions. And these are people who actually don't want sanctions relief. And interestingly, these are often people that the United States seek to weaken. But counterintuitively, as a result of sanctions policy, these are often forces of Iranian politics that are empowered. 
But Schatz thinks the problem is more complicated still. Many governments, and especially sanctioned ones, don't care much about the well-being of their population. The more national government is willing to let the population starve or suffer, the less likely those sanctions will be effective. Vaez puts more of the blame on the U.S. side. He argues that repeatedly imposing sanctions is counterproductive. The effectiveness of sanctions as a tool of statecraft depends on our ability to relieve sanctions in response to real policy shifts of the target country. And sanctions are only as effective as our ability to provide the target country with real relief. It really matters what happens when sanctions are lifted, not necessarily what happens when sanctions are imposed. Despite the initial success of sanctions against Iran bringing the government to the negotiating table, Vaz says the United States wasn't able to deliver on the promised relief. Despite the Obama administration's proactive efforts, it took months and months for U.S. Treasury Department to issue licenses, even for sale of our own Boeing aircrafts to the Iranians. It took about 10 months, for instance, to issue licenses for these specific airplanes. And also, Iran's banking ties with the outside world really never went back to normal because of the persisting chilling effect of sanctions that we had put in place. And there are other countries that are looking at this Iranian experience, like North Korea, like Venezuela. And I think we'll come to the conclusion that there is no point to come to a diplomatic uh, settlement with the United States to, to lift sanctions, because sanctions relief only happens on paper and deals with the United States are only as good as the administration who has signed on to them. So if the U.S. experience with sanctions is such a mixed bag, why has the United States gone from having 912 global sanctions in place in 2000 to having 9,421 in place in 2021? Schatz says that part of their appeal is they can serve so many purposes, but they cost the U.S. government so little. What we always think of as an outcome of those tools is compliance, bringing about a behavioral or a policy change. But there could be other purposes to those tools. We might be using them to deter a foreign target from taking an action. We might be using them purely for symbolism. We also could be using them in lieu of something else linked to symbolism. We could take military action of some sort, but we don't want to do that. It's not worth it. So we'll put something on. We'll do a sanction. And in the world of sanctions, the United States is king. Because the United States controls the market of U.S. dollars, and because dollars play such a huge role in global trade, U.S. sanctions carry weight that other countries can't match. If you have dollars and you can get those dollars to someone else without going through a U.S. bank, there's nothing the United States can do. But as it turns out, in order to move dollars around the world, almost always you need to go through the U.S. banking system. So that's where the U.S. gets its financial sanctions power from. But the United States hasn't only tried to coerce countries. It's also tried to co-opt them. And frankly, that hasn't been a huge success either. In the Middle East, the United States has poured billions of dollars into economic assistance. Its stated goal has been to do what it seeks to do elsewhere in the world, 
Build resilient economies that more closely resemble the United States with robust private sectors, high levels of trade and investment, and a limited role for state-owned enterprises. One of the biggest beneficiaries of this approach has been Egypt. The United States put almost $30 billion into the Egyptian economy since Egypt made peace with Israel in the late 1970s. But few U.S. policymakers point to Egypt as a major economic success story. Amy Hawthorne is the Project on Middle East Democracies Deputy Director for Research. During the Arab Spring, she served as a senior advisor for Near Eastern Affairs in the State Department and as Egypt Country Coordinator for the Special Coordinator for Middle East Transitions. She says that U.S. economic aid to Egypt hasn't really changed the Egyptian economy much over the last four decades. So when we look at how Egypt has done with this money, when measured against those formal goals that the United States has set, we see that really there hasn't been much positive impact. The poverty rate in Egypt today is by most measures, you know, worse than it was several decades ago. The private sector in Egypt continues to be very anemic and crowded out by politically connected firms or military-owned enterprises. Egypt still doesn't have a good trade balance. All of this aid has not really made much of a positive impact at all against the development and economic goals that the U.S. has set for it. It has actually, I would say, in many respects, been a failure. But Hawthorne says that aid has achieved a different goal. If we look at maybe what we might call the informal or unstated policy goals of this assistance, perhaps the aid has been slightly more effective. And I would say that those unstated goals attached to this economic aid for Egypt are promoting the stability of the Egyptian regime whatever regime that happens to be. This aid program, as you know, has continued during the regime of Sadat, of Mubarak, of Morsi, now of Sisi. So whichever is the incumbent regime in Egypt, one of the goals of this assistance program is to support that regime and help it stay in place and not collapse. The rationale at base for this aid is not about economic development. It's not about governance. It's not really about improving health and education outcomes. It is about signaling and reaffirming to the Egyptian government and possibly signaling to other actors in the Middle East region, Egypt's strategic importance to the United States. On that front, you could say that USAID to Egypt has been a success. Egypt's remained at peace with Israel, and it hasn't obstructed, and in some cases, it's significantly helped a number of U.S. initiatives in the Middle East. But using economic inducements to solve strategic problems in the Middle East has also led to its own problems. One of them is, once you start using them, it's hard to stop. Egyptian officials have told me directly in conversations that they see this economic aid as an entitlement. They use that word, that they are entitled to it because of peace with Israel. Many senior Egyptian officials who are decision makers on these issues see this as a rent, a rent that the United States pays because of Egypt's strategic cooperation with the United States 
and because of, you know, Egypt's peace treaty with Israel in particular. Howard Schatz sees other problems too. Large flows of aid can lead to corruption. The best example of that is when we started giving lots of money to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And aid can leave governments weaker, not stronger. If you go to a country receiving a large amount of aid, you'll see a lot of their best people are working for aid agencies rather than for host country governments. Finally, a commitment to aid can mean that the United States ends up pouring money into projects that the host government has no intention of letting become successful. If I had to boil it down to one reason why we have not really seen much large-scale impact on Egyptian behavior when it comes to economic and other government policies that our aid program is ostensibly or purportedly trying to bring about, it's because the Egyptian government, whatever Egyptian government it's been, whichever Egyptian regime, has not been a development partner for the United States. And some in the U.S. government think, that's fine. So when you have this money that sort of keeps flowing because of strategic imperatives and because of a bureaucracy on both sides, Egyptian and American, that's built in to keep this money going, you get an inability or an unwillingness on the part of the United States to really look honestly and say, why isn't this program achieving more? But economic aid is not the United States' only economic carrot in the Middle East. We negotiate bilateral investment treaties with countries. We negotiate free trade agreements with countries or with groups of countries. Assistance of some sort in using U.S. suppliers or buying U.S. goods. And for that, we have things like the U.S. Export-Import Bank, so preferential trade finance. If you ask economists, trade has been an effective policy tool. In terms of the positive aspects of economic statecraft, the U.S. has been extremely effective with trade agreements. And in fact, some of those trade agreements have had political motivations. After 9-11, we developed a set of trade agreements with Middle Eastern countries, for example. We're very good at those trade agreements. The United States is an extremely inviting market. And so in general, countries want to have a trade agreement with the United States. And when the United States switches up how it gives aid, that's led to some real successes. We actually have been quite innovative in delivering assistance with the development of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Even though it's a small amount of money, I think it's had a large impact on how people think about development assistance. One is it delivers assistance to countries that meet good marks on issues such as governance. And that counters the problem of giving money to governments that are just going to waste it. The second innovation of the Millennium Challenge Corporation is that it develops that assistance in coordination with the host country government in the sense that it is a project that the host country government owns. There's much more country ownership than with traditional development assistance. It is not just a gift from a powerful country to a less powerful or poor country. But even when there have been successes in changing behavior or improving economic outcomes in the Middle East, the United States has struggled to demonstrate that to Middle Eastern publics. Generally, you might find if you asked Egyptians, they might say either they have no awareness of what USAID is doing or has done. They just don't know about it. 
or they might have a negative opinion, since, as you know, the United States is generally not that popular in Egypt. The United States government and a lot of Egyptians don't know that the United States is responsible for helping to develop Egypt's sewage system, its fresh water availability, that the U.S. in the past has played a very positive role with immunizations, with literacy. And it can be hard to measure success in the first place. What we do know is the trade agreements lead to more trade. And we know that trade is positively correlated, and I would say causative, of economic growth. So we have a trade agreement, we have more trade, we have slightly faster economic growth, larger economy. But then the link that we don't have much control over is how does that higher amount of GDP get distributed within the country? So who got those gains from the extra growth of trade? And who were the losers? There are always losers in expanded trade also. So we often have not looked at distributional consequences of any of our economic tools. So what would an effective economic toolkit for the U.S. look like? Howard Schatz said it should start with a reevaluation of the tools at the United States' disposal. The frontier, I think, that's very interesting is how can those positive inducements be made more efficient? Should we rethink the goals of those positive inducements in the ways that we've started to rethink sanctions? So the United States Treasury went through a sanctions review and U.S. sanctions policy is evolving, has changed a bit its goals. What can we do with the positive inducements? What more can the U.S. and its allies and partners do to induce positive economic development, integration of those countries into the international rules-based system, the foundation of which is the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, and the kind of basic rules of trade, national treatment, most favored nation. So I think those are the areas that are, that are most interesting at this point and worth looking at further, especially in relation to the Middle East, as the Middle East tries to reform its own economies. The United States' experience with its economic toolkit in the Middle East hasn't always led to the changes that the United States intended. Sanctions have had some impact, but most targets have been able to adjust to them and even profit from them, undermining their long-term effectiveness. The number of times governments have rethought their core interests because of U.S. sanctions is low. In addition, sanctions tend to give repressive governments even more control over their economies, potentially strengthening those governments against internal challengers. Positive inducements haven't been markedly more successful. They've generally been less effective than hoped in creating a virtuous circle of reforms that bring governments closer to the United States. When there's been success, it's often hard to measure and hard to demonstrate to publics in the Middle East. Next time on the podcast, we look at the United States diplomatic toolkit in the Middle East and the failures and successes of U.S. diplomats in the region. This is the United States in the Middle East podcast miniseries. I'm your host, John Alterman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to Babbel on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 